It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Whitney Lordson. The other morning, I was hanging out in my kitchen in my house here in Los Angeles, which is very close to where our guest lives. We're not going to say where, but we're the same neighborhood in LA. <laughs> so I'm in my kitchen and I have this old David Bowie poster from the early, early 1970s before Ziggy Stardust. It wasn't even the Spiders of Mars yet. It's when Bowie still had his long hair and he dressed like kind of this bohemian, like way before the alien stuff, way before the Ziggy stuff. And I was reflecting on how many artists that I know and love who have chosen stage names or alternate personas and how interesting that is. And you, Kitten Kuroi, being an artist that I love and admire and have had the pleasure to work with and have been friends with for many years, I realized something that over all the years that I have known you, I don't think I've ever asked you the origin story of Kitten Kuroi, what that means to you, and also the psychological implications of choosing a stage name or an alternate persona as an artist. So I want to kick that off because I find it so fascinating. I was reflecting on, you know, Tina Turner, that amazing HBO Max documentary that came out recently. And, you know, Tina Turner's real name is Anime Bullock. And David Bowie was actually David Jones. And he chose David Bowie because Davy Jones was in the monkeys at the time. And he didn't want to get himself confused with Davy Jones and the monkeys. So we know a lot of amazing artists who have chosen this path in their artistic career, yourself included. So Kit and Kuroi, tell me what does it mean? Why did you choose it? And what does that mean in terms of embodiment for you? When you're singing, when you're doing your thing as Kit and Kuroi, what is it all about? That's a great question. <laughs> it's a great question. I think that the evolution of that name has slightly changed throughout the years, honestly. But so it started out firstly on a real basic level. Ever since I was a child, I've loved black cats. My mom used to dress me up for every Halloween as some sort of black cat by my choice. So it was kind of getting out of control. Like I was like a cute little black cat. Then another year I was a cuter one. And then I was like, I want to be Cleopatra cat. I want to be a grown baby cat. I went like, it just got stupid. It got real dumb. <laughs> But that black cat stuff like that, that's always been a part of me, I guess, instinctively. And what is interesting, I feel like as I've gotten older, so let's see, I came up with the moniker. So I went to school, I went to Cal State Fullerton, and my minor was <laughs> Japanese language culture studies. And I learned that kuroi or kuro is the color black. And I was like, yo, that's hot. Right. And so anyway, I kind of played around with the name, but didn't do anything with it. And then to kind of take a, a kind of sad but empowering turn, I had this ex-boyfriend who was super abusive. And I was like, I want to disappear. Like, I want me, you know, by my government name to disappear so that he can't find me. And so then I and I don't think I've told anybody this. So 
exclusive. Beep, beep, beep. <laughs> but I went and I just every single social media thing that I opened, I went under Kitten Kuroi. He would never be able to find me. And then I started making music and I was like, I mean, actually trying to like release stuff and everything. And that's after I'd already met Damon and we were working together and I started going by the name Kitten Kuroi kind of secretly, but through my music. I think the the first person I told was Natasha Bedingfield. We were on an airplane and I told her I'm going to go by the stage name Kitten Kuroi. And then she was like, oh, my gosh. I have chills. That sounds amazing. That's so great. And then I told some people on the Engelbert Humperdinck gig. And then this one man that was in the band at the time, I was at the airport. Everything has to do with the airport. I don't know. I was at the airport and I was trying to figure out where the rest of the band was. And the man didn't call me by my government name. He yelled out, kitten. And that was the first time I heard someone else say my name. And so it's kind of like I had this Selena Kyle kind of moment. If you guys are familiar with Batman, Batman, the second Batman is my favorite Batman. But you know how Selena Kyle was treated bad. She was abused, all this kind of stuff. She loved cats. That just was a side note. (laughs) And then she ended up falling to what we thought was her death. But she had a whole phoenix thing. And when she came back, she was stronger than ever. And she was a black cat. Right. So I was getting that as a sign, you know, Janet Jackson, black cat, all of that. And so, yeah, and it kind of went from there. And now most people only know me as Kitten Kuroi. Like I've done gigs, you know, with Damon and, you know, or and my mom might be there and they're like, where's Aisha? That's my government name. Where's Aisha? Where's Aisha? Aisha's on her way. And people would be like, who's Aisha? Why do we care? When is Kitten coming? You know, so anyway, that is the whole roundabout long story, how I got that name and how that name stuck. It just was destined to be my name. And interestingly enough, if you Google that name, I'm literally the only person. You're not going to find a cartoon character or anybody else. It's just me. So it's meant for me. So pretty much anywhere that you see on the Internet, Kitten Kuroi, even if it's a half started profile, I started that thing. So, yeah. Now, your other part of the question about, you know, on stage, how does that translate? I don't know. I think just think about Selena Kyle. Think about Catwoman. Think about, you know, when you have a different moniker, that's not the name that you were given. You're able to step outside of yourself. And for some people, they might transform to somebody completely different. But I like to think for me, this is me intensifying that that part of myself, that fraction of myself. Like the star seed that I am super intensified. So if I'm a school teacher, I'm going to be, you know, Aisha, I'm going to be Miss Humphrey. But if I'm on stage, if I'm doing my thing, I'm going to be Kitten Kuroi because that's essentially who I am. It's my chosen name, you know. So, yeah. I love this because it reminds me of another origin story that I thought Jason was going to bring up that involves you as well is the origin of his cat, Figaro. I thought that was what you were going to start with, Jason. (laughs) So I feel like you need to fill in that story for the listener that hasn't heard it yet. Okay, so apparently we're going to be just rolling with a cat theme, some feline energy going fierce, which, you know, if y'all know me, I got a whole bunch of felines up in this house. And what Whitney is referring to is the fact that back in 2015... On my birthday, 
you and Damon had let me know about a unit on your block. It was actually, it was behind, in front of your house. You're like, it's up for rent. You want to be our neighbor. I was like, that sounds pretty dope. So Whitney and I drove over on my birthday from dinner and we checked out this, this house near you. Didn't end up taking the house. However, there was this really sweet little panda tuxedo cat hanging around your property. And I remember being like, well, what's up with this cat? And your landlord was like, oh, you know, the people that, that moved out, they just literally just left the cat. And my heart was so broken because A, I have abandonment issues from my father. So anytime I see another being who's been abandoned, I'm, I go automatically into like daddy mode. I'm just like, I got to take care of you. So long story short, <laughs> I'm like, what's going to happen to the cat? And he's like, eh, I'm probably just going to call like animal control. I'm like, yo, if you call animal control, this cat's probably going to die. It's going to go to a high kill shelter. So I literally look at Whitney and I'm like, we're taking the cat. And I remember Whitney looking back at me like, we're taking the cat? I was like, yeah, we're taking the cat. Scoop up this cat. Here we are six years later, Figaro Hidalgo Robel. Yes. This beautiful, beautiful panda that was a gift because you guys invited me over to take a look at possibly being one of your neighbors. I mean, it's just, it's just this beautiful story and he's this sweet, sweet boy. And he's my son now. And so that's just one of the many gifts from from the years in the relationship that I've known you, Kitten. So oh. thanks for bringing that up, Whitney. <laughs> and he too, his part of his origin story is coming out of what we believe to be some sort of abuse because you had told us some stories based on what you witnessed with your neighbors of how they were treating him, but also it's technically abuse to just leave your animal behind and move out and leave him to fend for himself in some neighborhood, you know, and Jason, you know, had to take him to the vet because he was covered in fleas mm -hmm. and he had digestive issues and he just went through this whole transformation. Plus we don't know what his name was yeah. before Jason found him, which I wish I could find out somehow. I've like made jokes about like, what could his name be? You know, like could be like some really basic name like Bob, <laughs> Bob. or Frank or like whatever, you know, <laughs> and I, I wish that I was hoping that you would know you or no. Damon would know what his name was somehow. No, we can make up one though. He asks about you guys sometimes figure will be like, Is he? what's Kitten and Damon up to? How they been? <laughs> they good? They good? I'm like, yeah, they're good. They're good, man. They're good. Aww. I think this conversation about cats is interesting because you having this connection to embodying cat energy. You talked about having these costumes as a child that your mom would make you and, and always wanting to be a cat. It's interesting because when I talk to people about their companion animals, and this is going to lead into a, a deeper conversation about binary thinking. And mm -hmm. I think the danger of binary thinking is like, you're either a cat person or a dog person. It's like, I don't want to choose a team. I'm like, yes, I'm both. But some people are very adamant about I'm this or I'm that, right? This is a very dominant kind of model of thinking with humanity right now. But cats have a very specific energy. I mean, we can agree that, you know, the embodiment of feline energy is very different than dog and a lot of other animals. I mean, feline energy in general, whether you've got a big cat out in the wild or you've got a house cat, it's very, very particular kind of energy that vibes with some people and doesn't vibe with others. So I'm curious, Kitten, like, what do you think as a young girl, why did that energy and, and to this day, being Kitten Kuroi, what is it about that vibe that resonated with you? What do you think drew you to that? Or why did you think you embodied that and wanted to be a cat? Hmm. I never thought about that, honestly. I just kind of felt it, whatever was channeled to me. I was like, cats, yeah, cats, yeah. Thinking about it now, I think it's 
It's the independence of them. They're very independent. Like you can just be like, here is your food. I'm going to carry on with my life. And they're just like, I know where the food is. Don't tell me what to do, you know, kind of thing. You know, the, the sassiness of the cat. But at the same time, they can be so very cuddly. And I'm like that too. But I'm very much like a cat. I'm very much like, hold me, hold me, hold me. Stop it. Stop it right now. Don't you touch me no more. <laughs> you know? so, I mean, I just think they're, they're free spiritness. And then just the way that they command attention just walking in the room like when a puppy comes in you're like oh puppy 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 when the cat comes in, you're like it's cute is it okay if I touch you okay. you know it's like everyone kind of there's this part where people are like this is cute but I have to like assess the thing because she is the dominant or he they are the dominant energy in that room and I don't think that was a conscious choice but I think that there is something about me that I've been told that I'm like, where, you know, I can come into a room and people notice that I'm there. And I'm not necessarily coming in like, I mean, sometimes I'm flamboyant, but I'm not coming in like, look at me, everyone, I have arrived. Here I am. Talk to me. Tell me things, you know, just the energy that I have been told that I exude. But I honestly, like, I don't think I really thought about it that deeply. It doesn't mean that it wasn't important to me. I just think you are what you are by nature things come to you and you're just like, yeah, that is me. That makes sense. I can't think of any other way to be. This is how I've always been. It's so interesting you you contextualize it like that because what flashed on me was years and years ago, a friend of mine, we were talking about veganism and this was <laughs> this was one of those conversations when you're like, oh, this person's really high and they're about to ask a question that only comes out when you're super high. He's super high. He looks at me. He says, he's, he's like, Jero, Jero, do you ever think about the fact that like maybe we're vegan because in our previous lifetimes, we were animals that were abused and we remember it. Mm. And so now we're humans. And so we're dedicated to fighting for righteousness for animal rights, for civil rights, for for justice, for equality, because we know in maybe a previous incarnation what that was like. And I found like it, it's funny I say he was high, but that's always stuck with me of like when you talk about you know, be what you are, it really is interesting how as human beings we kind of gravitate toward things yes. and we don't know why. We're just drawn to certain things. Like you mentioned your Japanese studies for whatever reason. And Whitney knows this. My whole life, I have been just magnetized to Japanese food, Japanese art, Japanese culture. Most of the cars I've had have been – there's something about the ethos and the craftsmanship and the culture. I don't know why. And again, I thought maybe I was Japanese in a previous life. Maybe there's some soul connection that I am not aware of in this you know, incarnation. But it's super interesting because to me – this process of discovering who we are doesn't end. There's not an end point of like, well, I figured out all the layers to who I am as being. I'm done now. See ya. But even more so with all of us as being entrepreneurs and artists, you know, we all have a background in food, music, with Whitney being a filmmaker and all the things she's done. It's interesting how choosing to do something artistic, particularly in life, for me kind of feels like a constant process of figuring out who we are, 
right? Because because maybe in the beginning, and I'm curious, Whitney, too, how you feel about this. Like when we're beginning and we're young artists, I feel like it's easy to want to emulate what we've seen come before. It's very easy to, you know, people have say, oh, well, you know, your film looks like so-and-so or, or your voice or your performance sounds like blah, blah, blah. And maybe that's what we do as young artists because we haven't figured out who we are yet. And so I guess my question is, is how do we navigate? Because I get caught up on this sometimes of, am I, am I trying to sound too much or be too much like my heroes, my avatars, the people that have moved me profoundly? And what's the line between figuring out who we are and also honoring the influences and not denying them? I don't know. Does that question make sense? <laughs> are you asking that of me or of Both of you. But <laughs> well, well, you're both artists and both have obviously different backgrounds in, in the artistic fields you've chosen. But it, it seems like a fine line, doesn't it? Where we're influenced, we're moved deeply by the art that's come before us. But we also, as humans, I think, have a deep desire to figure out what our unique voice is. And sometimes that can get a little messy. Well, I'm actually curious. I'll add on to that and share a little bit of my feelings first which I think part of what makes it hard to be clear about my identity is that we live in a time where we're exposed to so many people and it's really easy to get into the comparison trap. And I even felt this way though, growing up. And one thing that I've, and growing up, by the way, I didn't have social media. I don't think any of us did. (laughs) You know, we didn't have access to tech in the way that we do now. And we didn't have social media, at least in the form that it's in now. And it wasn't very common. But what we did have was whatever social environments we are in. For me, I grew up in a small town and I had very supportive parents, but also as I've identified more as an adult, a mother that had very strong opinions about me and what I should be, who I should be how I should be acting, all of these. It was a lot of shoulds. And that's a topic we've covered on the show. In fact, we had someone on specifically to talk about the word should. And I'm not a huge fan of it because I feel like it starts to put you into a box. But as a little kid, when your parents, your teachers, your classmates are telling you what you should and shouldn't do, you tend to listen as part of your survival and your coping mechanisms. And I think if we're not aware or we don't have the a different mindset, we can easily continue doing that as an adult. And that's what I've carried through up until my most recent life. And it, now I have to uncover my identity and get back to the core of who I am. And some of it has been there a little bit more subtly than others. You know, to Jason's point, I've been really into animals most of my life. I've been really into creativity and technology. And a lot of the things I'm doing did stem from how I was as a child. But I've also felt clouded because I was a people pleaser as well, trying to do what I feel like I should be doing. And I'm curious for you, Kitten, A, did you grow up in that way or a completely different way. And B, I'm especially curious about how it is for you right now to be an artist in the context of social media, but also the context of fame. Because you mentioned like some of these artists that you've worked with who you would know by name, right? Like I'm sure there's a number of them, even if you don't share who they are, like you've probably been around 
musicians that the average person would recognize. And I'm sure you've been around with other artists who the average person wouldn't know their name, but or the mainstream wouldn't know their name. And yet they're equally, if not more talented per se, right? But because of the way fame works in mu- music, those people might not be as successful in other people's minds. And so I'm just fascinated by what it's like to be a musician mm-hmm. right now in 2021, but also like this whole musician experience of like fame versus talent or how fame works with talent. Okay. Well, loaded questions, like <laughs> question on question on inquiry. Like I'm ready to answer. I'm just trying to like, you know, itemize them in my brain. Like, all right, which one do I want to tackle first? As far as the should the should have, would have, whatever's, you know, growing up. So I recently had an Instagram live chat with my mom and we kind of talked about that. And I was saying like, I grew up in a household where there was a lot of music. Music was played. My mama played piano. My mama sang. She never played piano or sang for other people, though. Like she wasn't like, this is what I do or this is my side gig. It was kind of like you sing at church, you sing with your family, you sing for your family. And that's the extent of that. She also was a school teacher. So she sang for her students. She had an auto harp. She taught herself how to play and would just, you know, play the songs and stuff and She would be singing them in Spanish because she primarily spoke Spanish and taught in Spanish. So she would do all that. My grandma and all her sisters sang. But again, I didn't really know personally about family members that were performers. I have one uncle who he was a singer. He was a blues singer in Germany. He went over there to be, you know, be behind the Berlin Wall. And he just basically never came back. He was a blues singer. Then he was a gospel singer. Then he amassed a gospel choir out there. And it was just like, there was probably like one or two black people in the whole thing. And all the rest were white Germans. And they were learning, are you ready? Negro spirituals and traditional black gospel songs with very thick German accents. It was super cute. And they would, they're like, there's this one song that they had. And it was like, I know the Lord. He's watching me. I know it's like so cute. It's like they're singing these songs that we would sing in my church with my grandparents. And they've got these really thick German accents. But anyway, I didn't really meet him until I probably got into college. So I knew he existed, but I never he existed in theory. He would bring us he would mail us gifts and stuff, but I never met him. I never saw it in action. I didn't realize there was a whole other branch of my family and they all went into entertainment and music. And I didn't find that out until 2008 when I went on a tour and going to different cities and just meeting all these extended family members that I had never met before. or Maybe I've heard about them. And then I was like, oh, shoot, I make sense then. I had no idea. But I say all that to say in my immediate household and then in the household with my grandma and stuff like that, music was your special gift to share with family, with church. Other than that, it was kind of like, do something traditional, you know, a teacher. There's lots of teachers, lots of nurses, you know, some accountants, some lawyers, but, you know, do more traditional things. And it wasn't even so much that people were telling me, don't sing, don't do whatever. It's just what I saw, you know. It's like I knew people that had these talents, but they didn't do anything professional with it. So it was kind of like, you should do this. So I didn't even know there was music schools. 
had no idea. So I went when I went to Cal State Fullerton and I studied communications with an emphasis of in public relations. Part of the reason why I said yes to that was because my cousin said, you don't really have to take math. And I was like, all righty then, you know, it was like, I'm just going to take language arts kind of things and, you know, stuff that's not so super duper technical, but all in between that, all up and, and around that, I was singing happy birthday for people. And, you know, somebody said, hey, you want can you sing with this? I'm like, okay, I'll sing, you know. But I still didn't even think it was something that you could do for an actual career because I had never seen it. I thought you had to be part of music royalty and that's how you got in or something like that. So I did have a little bit of, well, a lot of bit of an identity crisis because it's like, this is not what I want to do. If I could do anything all day, it would be like sing and eat food and cook the food and make songs and, you know. That was the deal. But I didn't think that was something that you could do. And so I'm going to school and, you know, I'm belabored with all of these different classes. I did love Japanese because I love languages. That was like the most fun to me. But yeah, I just I was kind of there was this identity crisis. It's like, who am I? What am I doing? And when I before I graduated, I started my own entertainment-based organization on campus and brought talent up there and we had discussions and dialogues and I would always find some kind of way to bring music to me, which is essentially and ultimately how I ended up finding my way into it. So I guess it's always been with me. Sometimes, I think sometimes you just kind of have to flow with what you're naturally going to do. So like if you are, if you want to be a singer, but you're washing the dishes in the kitchen, then keep singing really loud while you're washing the dishes in the kitchen. You never know who's hearing you or you never know what that practice can bring to you. And then somehow somebody hears you or there's some kind of opportunity and you're already in that space to sing. And, you know, you're the universe is going to kind of guide you, you know, in that direction. I think as long as you don't shut the door to it. Because I could have very easily been because I think when I got the call to to work with Natasha Benningfield, I was going back to school. I already had a degree from Cal State Fullerton. I went back to school, I went to Santa Monica College so I could study graphic design just to get an entry level job. And I hadn't even finished my first semester or quarter. I got that call and I was like, do sales. Bye, everybody. I was out. So, yeah, so there's that part of the question. I'm trying to think of what else is the, oh, comparison. Is it more about comparison? It's interesting that you bring that up because I I shared on my story today a little meme that says comparison is the thief of joy. And I was thinking about that this morning because it is easy to try to pit yourself up against another person. They could be doing barely better than you. They could be doing markedly better than you. They could, I don't know, whatever. But I think having access to everybody's personal business on social media or the appearance of having access to people's personal uh, business makes you feel like, wow, I am not doing enough. You know, I need to do more or, you know, if I keep looking at this person's feed, then I might get too influenced by them. And then people are going to say that I'm trying to be like this person or sound like this person, you know. And so what I do think the benefit of 
our general generation, having grown up without the social media, is that though we can be very addicted to it, we also have experienced a world in which we could turn it off. And the world isn't over. We're like, well, you just we just aren't on it. We might call up a friend or go outside or do something to kind of reset, which a lot of the younger generation don't really tap into as much because they're just not used to it. I mean, they were in the crib on the, you know, on the phone. But yeah, I sometimes get caught up in that and I just kind of have to turn off. I kind of have to turn off and I also have to turn off and turn in, right? turn into myself, I start to look at, well, what have I done in the past? That was kind of cool. What have I done? You know, it could be something as simple as, you know what? I was scared to talk to that person, but I did it. And then look what happened, you know, or, oh man, that, that one time I said yes to like, for example, there's this gig that I had. (laughs) It was a promotional marketing gig, but it was music based. And it was for that show Tosh.0. You guys know that show with Daniel Tosh, Tosh.0. So they were getting, we were supposed to look like and behave like a cult, the cult of Daniel Tosh. Like we only worship him. We had these long neon, like orange shirts and we were supposed to look totally messed up, like ashy and chapped and hair, all kinds of crazy. And then we had to learn this song which was like the song we sang over and over and over again. And they needed someone for one of the choirs. They needed someone to play guitar. Well, I'm not a guitarist, really. Damon is a guitarist. I know guitarists. I am not. And so, but I said, yes, I was like it because it paid more. (laughs) I was like, all right, then let's do this. So Damon set up a guitar so that it could be block chords. Is that what it's called? I can't think of what it's called, but it's like, instead of all the pretty strumming, you're just kind of like holding that chord and strumming. So he taught me, I needed to know the song in a few days. And I just sat there, memorized the lyrics and everything so I could sing it properly and then practice that stuff on the guitar in different ways and showed up and smashed it. And people were like, wow, you play guitar. That's so cool. And it's like, I don't know what the heck I'm doing. But that to me, that memory is cool because I just said yes to a thing. So sometimes if I'm feeling like, man, I'm not cool or I'm not, you know, I need to be original or I haven't I haven't done anything in my life. I kind of have to I get inspiration from the special, strange, weird stuff that I have done in the past. That's not to say that I don't get sad sometimes or depressed or sometimes I can't get out of the funk, but sometimes I think about the funk. That makes any sense. The funk in my life, the good stuff, the good funky funk. (laughs) And it helps. But yeah, yeah, I've been been and I have and I'm sure I will again be plagued with that. I don't know if that answered any of your questions, but yeah. It was such a real response. And and I think, you know, the mental health side of choosing an artistic career, you know, it's no joke because, you know, I, I think it's interesting because on the flip side of this, if we look about how we all grew up, right? If someone like got a record deal to your point, Kit, and it seemed like this mythological thing, you know, I mean, I remember growing up in Detroit and putting on my mom's, you know, Marvin Gaye records, all the Motown stuff, Stevie, 
Martha and the Vandellas, the Supremes, and you know, even like the classic rock stuff. It was pretty much like my household was pretty much Motown, soul, and classic rock. And listening to those vinyl records, you know, you talk about, you know, our origins of our musical love and and just the diversity of the music I was exposed to, it just seemed like this. My God, I don't know. Just just at that level, it seemed like something Herculean, something that to your point, only a select few people could achieve. Now with digital technology, you know, anybody can put out a record. Anybody. I mean, people recording at their house, the beautiful studio you have set up. We have access and technology that sort of has demystified this deification of people like, oh, I can cut a record too in my house and it's going to sound amazing. But the flip side though, is now anybody can do it. So what you have is you have the playing field having been opened now to a way that it has never been done for musicians with the access we have. However, it's a deluge of people doing it. So it's almost in some ways like finding, how do I even say this? Like finding quality, like high level musicianship that like really moves you. I find in some ways, and I might sound like a Luddite or like an old ass dude right now, like back in my day, everything was amazing. Every damn record you put on. And now it's like, if I find an artist that blows me, like blows me away, it's a little bit more rare. And I wonder if that's just because there's so much to sift through now. Whereas back in the day, if you put out a record, you were damn good. With a few exceptions, you were damn, damn good. Now it's like, oh, we're okay. Well, good effort. Yep. Sounds okay. Oh, all right. All right. So I, I think it's a weird push pull of we can do all the things now, mm-hmm. but it feels like. I don't know. To make something amazing feels more challenging because to break through the noise is tough. It's tough. I have a couple thoughts about that. I agree with you, number one. So (laughs) there's that. I think that there's the pros and there's the cons of it. So the pros are, yeah, you have that access. You know, everybody has that access, whether you know how to do anything or not. You have that access. And then there's so many more apps that allow you to play instruments that you couldn't play before, or they have like loops and all this kind of stuff. And then there is, there's an over proliferation of just, of even platforms to find music too, which makes it hard to like sift through and find anything. Back in the day, back in my day, uh, back in the day, I feel like more people were connected to the creation, the love, the instrumentality, I'm making up a word, of things. You know, more people played instruments or more people were, they were in band or something or they were, you know, it didn't even have to be marching band, maybe like little kid band where you had to play a recorder or something like that. You know, it's like people were more connected to music as a living, breathing organism back then. And that's right now a lot of people this is like this is my quick way for people to know I exist this is my quick way to just to do something to just release something real fast it's not so much that they're connected to music as its own entity they just it's about look at me I did a thing and I think also there's this push for everyone to sound the same like a few years ago it was kind of cool because you're like oh my god oh my goodness there's like country and hip-hop you know, coming together and, you know, all these genres. And it was like they were doing it in unique 
and interesting and surprising ways. But now every genre is starting to sound the same, the same kind of vocal processing, same kind of instruments. You might not even know a country song is country anymore. You might not know R&B song is R&B anymore. You might not know anything because everything is starting to merge into one ball of let's just hurry up and get this hit single out. You know, like if you look at, and I don't want to name name names of artists, but if you look at some artists that were even popular in the 90s, in the early 2000s, and then you compare stuff that they've released now, they're trying to compete with the children. They're changing their voices. They're squashing their vocals down. You know, they've cut ad libs out. Remember that there used to be ad libs in the beginning and ad libs at the back, you know, um, yeah, mm-hmm, all this kind of stuff, you know, yeah, that's what I'm talking about, all this. And it does it. Now it's just whatever beat. Do, 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 do. And then it gets into it and the music, the music stays the same. And it could be literally anybody singing on that track. Like someone's like, oh, I'm gonna make up a name. Oh, that's Shylock Hay. Oh, no, that was Tina Fey. I'm just saying Tina Fey. But you know what I mean? Like, and the, like the, the people only know that it's a different artist because they recognize the music being slightly different. It's not that they can pick up on the voice being different. You know what I mean? Like they will make you and Whitney sound exactly the same. And I'm supposed to be like, oh, they have two separate records out, but it sounds the same. You know, there isn't this, there isn't a lot of unique qualities about, I will say main mainstream, although I don't, I do not like the term mainstream, but a lot of it sounds the same. And so that kind of also takes you back to the whole comparison thing, because let's say you come out with your music and well, it doesn't sound like the current sound that everyone has. It's like no one is looking for the unique sound. Like those movies that we used to watch and this person's like, oh my God, they've got the sound. You know, everyone's all excited because they've got the sound, whatever the sound is, you know. Now it's everybody's trying to jump on the same ship, you know, like people aren't, they just, everyone is trying to sound like each other. And so when people come out with, for me, for example, the music that I I'm intending to come out with my project that I've been talking about for a thousand trillion eons of time. Part of the thing that was catching me was, well, I don't sound like the other people. My voice doesn't sound like the other people. The music ideas that I have don't sound like the other people. When I've worked with some other producers, they've tried to make me sound like other people. And I just did not like how my voice sounded. They took all the elements that make my voice sound unique and interesting that I personally like, they want to get rid of all of that because everybody's trying to make everybody sound like everybody else. So it is harder, you know, with all of that, it is harder to even find new, interesting music. And I remember when MySpace was the thing, it was kind of easier in that way, too, because you could just cruise through people's pages and you'd hear their music playing. You're like, wow, I just found this hidden gem. And that doesn't exist anymore. We don't have any social media platforms that you can, even if, even if you're not a musician, that you can incorporate music from other artists in it, you know. So that's my long-winded. <laughs> that reminds me of something that I have been reflecting on this afternoon, I spend time on, on TikTok and I think it was MTV 
I think it was their account that posted this. Do you remember this artist, this pop artist in probably the early 2000s, late 90s named Fifi Dobson? Yeah. Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) She, I think it was on an MTV interview, was talking about how they used to refer to her like they, meaning somebody, you know, maybe the industry used to refer to her as, I forget what name it was. They basically like called her a name in reference to her being the black Britney Spears Mm, because mm -hmm. they wanted to group her sound into the Britney Spears sound. And I thought, huh, that's interesting. I went back today and listened to her music and I was like, she doesn't sound anything like Britney Spears in my opinion, (laughs) first of all. But it, it just got me thinking about, it almost felt like maybe not the, this isn't the best term, but like a reverse cultural appropriation. Like, so often in the music industry, we have white people trying to sound like black people or people of another color ethnicity. And it's like they wanted to take this talented black singer and make her sound like Britney Spears because that's what was selling. And that bothered me. And then it was like, I just thought about how many especially young artists get boxed in because people see dollar signs and how this goes back to the question I was asking you earlier about just being in this industry, especially when you don't fully feel confident and developed when you're young and impressionable, when you really want something, it's easier for people to take advantage of you. And we hear about this so much in the music industry, all the horrific things that have happened to artists because they wanted to make it. They wanted to be successful. They wanted money. And they felt like they had to shortchange themselves or sign away their rights to things, hide themselves, be something different. And that feels so heartbreaking to me. And I hope that social media is perhaps helping things and and making it a little bit better. But I also saw how much cultural appropriation happens in general. And that's also starting to become maybe even a bigger or sustained just in a different way as an issue. Earlier today, also on TikTok, there was a Black creator who was talking about how many Black culture, like memes or trends, were utilized by big white social media stars, and that people don't even know the history. Like one of the big ones is the ice in the veins right now. Like that's a huge trend on, on social media in general, but especially on TikTok. And he now has an account, and I c- I'll find it and link to it in the show notes about showing the history. Like, hey. Ice in in the veins is not something that some 16-year-old white content creator came up with. Here's where it actually came from. And that history is rooted in Black culture. So let's give them credit. And I think that's incredibly important in, in the creative industry because it's just so easy for people to capitalize on something that they didn't even come up with in the first place. So I'm curious about your experiences and perspectives on that. Yeah, it's interesting. There's so many things that pop up in my brain as you guys are talking about <laughs> this. My, I have actual images in my head, like they just flash. That's I don't know how other people think, but I see fully formed images. One thing I want to bring up, which I think is actually cool. So and, and a good way to pay homage to something that is from a culture that's not yours. So a cool example. So Paul Stanley 
has a band. It's called Paul Stanley and the Soul Station or something like that. And they do like Motown songs. And it's really awesome. I saw them at The Rose, I think, in Pasadena a few years back. Incredible. And what's cool, though, what Paul was doing that I just had so much. I mean, I already had respect for the man. Like his voice is ridiculous already. But I had so much respect because he didn't just, you know, it wasn't like this is Paul Stanley and a whole bunch of black people singing Motown songs. Good night. Like he went through and explained why he chose these songs. Who was the writer of this song? Some little background about it, how he was because he basically he was very, very, very influenced by Motown, which a lot of people don't know. But if you listen to his voice, you hear that soul in his voice. I'm trying to think of the the album that I love. I can't think of it right now. But anyway, it has like who wants to be lonely on it and all this kind of stuff. I can't think of the name of the record. But anyway, super duper soulful voice that I think he does not get enough credit for. But it was cool to watch this man, you know, and he had his singers. He had three singers, uh, I think three or four singers. They were all black. I think I knew all of them, actually. He's got a Brazilian guitarist. I can't remember the drum people. I just pointed out the people that I remember that I personally knew. But <laughs> But, you know, he was just big up in everybody and giving so much respect and paying so much homage to this music that helped form him that he was so very inspired by and he's so very enamored with. And I think that's the right way to do it. The problem is if is when people take something completely and act like they made it up. And then if you are a person that represents the group that it came from and you're like, oh, hi, excuse me, <laughs> just want to let you know that's that's from us. Then they shun the person, you know, or they, they they try to just make a fool or a mockery or whatever. And that's when where the problem lies. I know there's people that are like, well, what's the difference between appropriation and appreciation? Well, appreciation includes respect. If you are giving respect where respect is due, you know that's appreciation. You know, if you're walking around wearing full head to toe, you know, Cherokee Native American tribe headdress outfit and you're trying to be sexy for the concert, that's not appreciation. That's appropriation. However, if you are a member of the tribe or if you have been invited by the tribe to come and be a part of something ceremonial and they're like, hey, we want you to learn our songs. We want you to learn, you know, to wear the full on outfit, you know, the full on traditional uniform. That's appreciation. That's respect. And you've been invited into that space to be like that. And that's the same thing with music. Now, music is interesting because it does evolve and we do we are inspired by each other. I just think that now, even more than before, at least in the night. So in the 90s, for example, in the 90s, if Snoop was doing a song that had a sample with George Clinton and Funkadelics, he would do a performance. He would bring George Clinton and the Funkadelics on stage. He would say, this is the person that the sample came from. You know, we got we were at that point in the 90s and in the in the early 2000s where people started doing that. You know, it's kind of like this is the person that found me. I'm going to bring them on or this is where I got this from. Whereas now, because it's so easy to access stuff at all times, people can easily get away with what I didn't know or, you know, and that there is, I think, is a big problem, you know, because we aren't getting that connection back to where where things came from 
I feel like I'm kind of going all over the place, but just kind of speaking to the appropriation, appreciation thing with music. For my personal experience being a Black woman, it's been interesting (laughs) in this industry because there are times when you aren't singing Black enough. And I have been told, oh, well, you know, you've got to sing Blacker. This is this person's idea, this concept of whatever they think Black sounding singing is. And I am not alone in that. There's a lot of black women, black people, but black women especially that are told, no, no, it's got to be, it's got to be more like this. You got to, you know, and it's kind of like, these are people like I grew up in a Southern Baptist church, like straight up gospel. That's what we did. So for somebody who's like, I am from, I don't know, whatever, lit, lit, what, Lithuania. And I'm going to tell you how to do the Southern black singing. It's kind of like, mm. You know, so I've I've experienced that. And then I've experienced where, you know, it's me and then maybe a non-black person and they aren't giving the soul that needs to be given. But because they aren't black, they get applauded so much more. It's very much like when uh, like there's the whole discussion about women chefs versus male chefs and how it's like a male chef can be. You know, I made this amazing grilled peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And everyone's like, yes, do it. And then the woman is like, I did too. And I did it first. And like, well, you're a woman. Like, yeah, you do that stuff. So it's kind of, I experienced some things like that as a black woman in this industry. When I first started coming out doing music under my name, Kitten Kuroi, it was all rock. And I would have to convince people to come and see me because they didn't think it made sense. Why would a black woman be singing rock? I've heard your voice before. Why could you? You can't do rock. Black women can't do rock. And it's interesting because a black woman invented rock as we know it. But, you know, it's like and and Tina Turner is not the only black female rocker that there is. But it's like they only give for the originators of almost anything. They only give you one space, maybe two. And then you've got to fight for that space. And then everybody else can come on and they can copy it and everything and act like they made it up. And people completely forget about about the originators of the thing. And especially when it has to do with some sort of, quote unquote, minority group. And I say minority because minorities are really the majority. But, you know, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? but yeah, that that happens a lot. It's not insurmountable. And I think what's interesting due to everything that happened last year, especially when it comes to civil rights movement, a lot more people are aware of what's going on. And a lot of people are calling out like they're just calling foul. They're like, that shit is no, Mm -mm." which is cool, which I think is in the long run and moving forward in the future is going to open a pathway for more authenticity, I think. Because people aren't letting folks just clown around and just, you know, steal things and whatever. I feel like people are going to start wanting to give homage, give more respect, give more appreciation in all facets. That's what I'm hoping. Maybe I'm an optimist, but that is what I'm hoping. You talk about so many realizations last year. And Whitney and I have talked about a lot of these on previous episodes of things that cracked us open and increased our level of awareness of experiences beyond our own. 
where it's it's not that I can understand what a direct life experience of being a black person is, but the understanding and a little more empathy of like, I had no idea this was going on or to that level. It's been so many of those moments. And a couple of the big ones, when we're talking specifically about cultural appropriation, was reading a story. There's a couple of things I want to say to this because there's so many moments that I look back on of like my mind being opened was talking about this article was talking about the history of white artists basically stealing from people of color taking their songs their chord progressions or their sound and making it their own and the story was about Eric Clapton visiting Hitsville going to the Motown studio before before Motown moved to LA in the early 70s apparently Eric Clapton visited and he was either there for a session when it was the t- the temps or the the four tops i can't remember which one but it was all of this really like cringy, inappropriate stuff of Eric Clapton wanting to like look down the throat of like Lamont Dozier to see what made him sound black. And it was like, oh God, like beyond cringy, beyond. But when you said that thing, Kitten, about can you sound more black, it flashed on that Eric Clapton story of like, he's trying to look down Lamont's throat to figure out how he makes that sound so he could emulate it. It's like moments like that that are just like, even now, I just, I I feel like gross in my body just thinking about this story. But on the higher level, I remember there was also a movement and and I haven't checked on it, but there was talk of, I think it was beyond just a petition, but, but leveraging a legal movement against the record companies to renegotiate the contracts of black artists. Because they were saying that by and large, the contracts for many, many, many people of color who were signed to these big record labels, the record deals were horrible, that they're literally making tens or hundreds of millions of dollars off these artists. Like Mace got brought up in in one instance. And people were like, you know, Universal Music and Bad Boy, like pay this man what he's earned, like just as one example. Mm -hmm. But how rampant that is and how many black artists over the years got big record deals, right? You think in your mind, I got this big record deal. But then years go by and you're like, oh, these people are not getting their due at all. Like it's it's horrifying how much they've been taken advantage of. And yet you look at how many artists over the years, I mean, Elvis, Led Zeppelin, I mean, Moby. I mean, we can talk about how Moby took a lot of those field recordings from Alan Lomax. And when the families of those black artists came to ask for their money, Moby was like, I'm not going to give you any money. Like all due respect to Moby, that was, I have great umbrage with his ethical choice there or lack thereof, but it's such a rampant thing. And I think beyond the respect you talk about kitten, what do you think we can do in terms of moving this needle to compensating artists of color to get paid what the hell they are worth? Like, what can we do about moving that beyond just the honor and the respect and homage how do we make sure that the, you know, people are getting paid yeah. what they've created for? You know what I mean? I think step one is see black people as human beings. See black people as sovereign human beings, not as the cute little background singers, not as like cute little puppies and that kind of thing. Like see us as actual human beings equal to everybody else, because that's the problem to begin with. You know, 
It's kind of like if you have a little child that's running a candy shop and then you have an adult running a candy shop, you're probably not going to even though even if the kid is somehow doing as well as the adult, the kid's probably not going to get paid as much as the adult because they're a kid and they're just cute and just, oh, look at you trying to do something. You know what I mean? Versus you see the adult as like, I'm an adult, you're an adult, you deserve a salary. So it's kind of like, and I don't know why I have this voice that sounds like this, but it's kind of like the same thing. A lot of times people in the industry look at Black people as like, pets as accessories as clout boosters you know like oh i'm going to have this big huge black choir and it's going to be awesome and i'm never going to see them again and i'm going to hardly pay them any money but everybody's going to applaud me because my heart is so big cuz look at me i'm surrounded by this black choir there was this artist i don't want to say his name I didn't work with him. I don't know him personally. I've never worked with him. So anybody that's all, oh, let me guess, let me guess. I don't know this person personally. I have seen him in real life. I've walked past him at the rehearsal space, but I don't know him. Anyway, he did an award show and he was singing his one of his famous songs that's super motivational and inspiring and people love it. And he was flanked by all of these like this like African boys choir. And it was interesting to me because I'm like, I have never, ever, ever heard about you doing anything with Africans, black people in general. But now for optics, you have this black boys choir. So it's like, okay, I don't know what happened after that. Are these children all fine? Are they all good and everything's wonderful? Are you are you contributing to whatever organization that they came from? You know, whatever choir, whatever group, like, are, are they just there so that you can say and sometimes it's it's subconscious. I don't think that every single person that does things like this is consciously thinking, oh, today I'm going to make black people look like my cute pets. Like, I don't think so. But I feel like there's a subconscious thing that's like black people are accessories. They're ambiance. They're they make me look cool. You know, they they come in here and they they bring the soul. They bring the funk and bring that funk back. But it's like see us as equals very talented in our own individual rights, just as you, I mean, you know, it's like, like I said, that example of it could be me singing and I'm singing my heart out and I'm giving you all the soul. I'm giving you all the whatever that's coming from a real place. And then you've got another girl who did not have a similar life experience and she may be singing the same song and she's struggling and she's not giving it to you, but because she's trying, she gets, and she's not black, she gets all of the accolades. She's the one that gets the gig or she's the one that gets all the money. But it's because I'm not seen as equal to that person. You know what I mean? I'm not getting credit for the effort that I've put in. I'm not getting credit because I'm trying. It's kind of like, well, you're black and that's just kind of what you guys do. So, you know, that kind of thing. So I feel like the first step to helping with that situation, to solving that that crisis of black artists not getting their due is to see Black artists, Black people as human beings that deserve money just like everybody else. You know, just like women needing to get paid equally to men. If you're doing the same job, pay me the same. You know, I'm not going to, and half the time the people that are getting paid less are working 10 times more, you know, and it's not even necessarily a conscious thing. But yeah, I feel like if we start to see human beings as we are equals, you know, there's no such thing as colorblindness. That colorblindness mess is absolute trash, is garbage. Stop with that. I'd hate it. I don't see color. You literally do. You chose your outfit today. 
You chose the color of your car, your nails, your hair. You know, you're over there thinking that man looks hot with his olive skin or, you know, or with her milky white complexion. You see it. You see me. You see us. There's no such thing. The problem isn't that I'm black and that you're white or Latino or Asian or whatever. That's not the problem at all. The problem is that you don't see us as individuals. So you can appreciate, going back to appreciate, you can appreciate my dark skin. You can appreciate my curly hair. You can appreciate my my thick lips and wherever else I come from. You can appreciate that and see that as different from you, but different in a beautiful way. We look different, right? If you stand me next to another black person, I'm not going to look exactly the same. I don't have a twin unless you put a wig on my brother. <laughs> you know what I mean? But you can see us. You, you see there's differences, you know, and, and it's okay and it's beautiful to accept these differences. And when people start to say, like, I have a friend and they're black, what are the, what's the message that you're sending? You know what I mean? When you're whispering that the person being black is not the problem. It's what you uh, what you associate with blackness. And that's why you feel like you have to whisper it or it's how you think other people will perceive you or how you think other people will perceive them because they're black. That is the problem. So once we start seeing people as human beings, once we start accepting diversity as a beautiful thing, we can really start moving forward. And then another thing about the whole money thing with black people and getting what they're due, we just need to stop having greedy people. They need to be called out. All these greedy people, you know, I mean, and it it does happen in the black community, too. And I think that also comes from conditioning, you know, as far as African-Americans. Not all of us, but many of us are descendants of slaves and that slavery mentality is very crabs in a barrel for survival. And part of that is is a carryover. So, you know, there's there's a lot of awakening on so many different levels that needs to be happening. But I think if we can start seeing the beauty in diversity, you know, and looking at people for their individual merits and their talents, uh, there's so many people. There are not so many, but there are some people that really don't like the whole concept of affirmative action. They're like, we don't need it, blah, blah, blah. I think it's great personally, not just because I'm a black woman, (laughs) but I think it's great because we don't yet live in that world where we can look around and say, hey, you know, Jenny, she's Asian. Okay. You know, Jenny's talented. Jenny's beautiful. It's not like Jenny is talented, but she's Asian or Jenny is talented and she's Asian. Jenny is talented in the story. So once we're able to just be in that place, we won't need affirmative action. Who wants that? You know what I mean? Nobody really at the end of the day, nobody actually wants to, you know, we want to get in on on our merit. But because the gatekeepers of things are selfish and greedy and ignorant and hateful, we need protections in place. So, yeah, I think. This is all so incredibly important because a couple of things come up as you're saying this. It feels like, especially after what happened just about a year ago, we're recording this in May 2021. And it was, I think, in May 2020 with George Floyd and everything that started to build in the Black Lives Matter movement and how it was like, insanely eye-opening for me because suddenly I felt like I could no longer be subtly anti-racist. I had to really examine my life and also 
hold myself accountable and be really honest and and examine my entire history, my family's history, my, you know, everyone around me, how I was growing up. And it's just been an ongoing practice. And I felt like a lot of people, and this is kind of part of the overall theme that we've touched a lot upon is like taking shortcuts, taking shortcuts to success, taking shortcuts to money, to fame, and taking shortcuts to changing the world. We want to like quickly fix everything. And I think that's probably why this performative action happens of like, oh, I'm a white person, but look, I'm surrounded by black people. I'm not racist. But from my examination, there are lots of racist elements in my life and experience. And I can't disregard those. I can't like hide them away and pretend them not there because that's part of who shaped who I am now. So similar to what I was saying towards the beginning of the episode, I have to go back and almost like retrace my steps and I have to examine how I was raised and all the subtleties of racism that were in my the way my parents raised me as white people, the way my primarily white town was growing up and the white college I went, you know, like there was just so many experience of whiteness around me that I didn't even know most of my privilege. And one thing actually that I've been examining in the past few days, again, that came from TikTok, (laughs) where I find a lot of inspiration is this idea of how threatening white women are. And I was like, really taken aback, you know, as a white woman, I've just been reflecting on that. Like, wow, do, am I a a threat? Kind of like what you're describing kitten of like, as a musician, when, when you're performing with other white women, like maybe you don't even consciously know it sometimes, but maybe you feel like it's a threat because it's not equal. So even though that specific individual white woman might not threaten you, it's what she represents that can threaten you. And that to me was just that gave me more more motivation to work on this and to speak out against it because I don't want to perpetuate that. But to my point, you can't like race through this. You have to deal with it little by little. And it's it's an ongoing thing to your point. I don't know if in our lifetimes, this is going to be fully sorted out as much as we would like it to. It's going to take a lot of time and experimenting and it's we're undoing hundreds of years of history that is very complex. Mm. And I think part of the complexity is because we either we've tried to like hide it away or push it down if we had the privilege to do that. And it just hasn't been acknowledged. So like this past year, a lot's been acknowledged, but that's not enough time to fix things. Right. So I'm so grateful for you sharing your experiences because that's part of how I raise my awareness. And given that many of our listeners, Kitten, are white women, I think it's incredibly important for us to like really listen and learn and be committed to it on another level. Yeah. Yeah. I've had very interesting experiences with white women. I mean, I don't I don't walk around consciously thinking about racism and stuff like that. I mean, obviously, it does cross my mind in certain situations. My head is on swivel because you, you know, for safety reasons. But I have had very interesting since this is the words America. Since this is such <laughs> since this is such an intimate, an intimate conversation 
and candid, I would like to share. I would like to step to the floor about white women. So I've had lots of white women friends in my life, but I can't, I haven't seemed to have, I can't even say words. It's like part of me is trying to be very nice. And part of me is like, ah, fuck that shit. So anyway, but okay. I prefer the latter, to be honest. So let's hear the raw version. (laughs) (laughs) Uh Okay. Yeah, bring it, please. Bring the action. Okay, I'm going to preface this by saying, Ken, love everybody. Just, I love them. I love humans. I love people. That's probably my tragic downfall. I'm going to be the one that's like, oh, that apple looks so nice. Oh, God, Jesus. You know, I'm going to be that person. Poisoned by the apple. But anyways, my experience with white women and white girls has been tumultuous at best. Not with every, everyone. But um, like right now, I have... Only one very, 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 very close white friend, female friend, not white friend in general, but white female friend. That's very, very close. Ever since I was little, it's like I can't they it's not even me. It's they can't seem to be friends with me without bringing some sort of racism to the table. I mean, even when I was my first experience of racism was probably like kindergarten or, or something like that. And it was an after school care thing. So it was me and my brother. We always hung out all the time and weird little dark skinned little cherub, little babies, little nuggets. And then we would hang out with this white girl and then we would hang out with this biracial girl. She was, I think her mom was white and her dad was black or vice versa. And we would just all hang out. We're kids. We didn't think anything of it. You know, by nature, kids play with whatever they want, whatever and who they want to play with. So if a child wants to play with the snail, a child's going to play with the snail. If a child wants to play with, you know, anybody, they will. An old man that only has one tooth and one eye, a child does not see that. They're just like, this person is interesting and fun. That's all I care. So I didn't think anything of it. And like my parents, they, especially at that age, they weren't like, watch out for racist people. Like, you know, they weren't, it wasn't that, that it wasn't something that was spoken, but it wasn't something that was like a great discussion at that point. We were, it was kindergarten, you know? So anyways, we're playing with this girl all the time. And so one day, you know how little kids make announcements? They have to like stand back against the wall or something and announce the whole thing, you know? And the girl, the white girl, she goes, who wants to come to my birthday party? And so my brother and I didn't think, I do, I do. Because we're thinking like, clearly we're built in. We hang out all the time. So we don't need to exert any extra energy. So we continued to play. And then she looked at us and she goes, that's not black. And we were like, huh? what? And then like the biracial girl goes, well, what about me? I'm my dad's black or whatever she said. And the girl's like, oh, well, you're not really black. I don't think you count. And that was the first time I experienced racism in kindergarten by a little white girl. And we played together all the time. I didn't see a problem with it or anything. Moving on, I had a, a friend in Middle school. Well, it wasn't called middle school back then. It was called junior high. I had a friend in junior high and we hung out all the time. We she had like three sisters or two sisters and a potbelly pig and we would all hang out together. It was so much fun. And we both were in like the nerdy kid classes, like the honors classes or whatever. And we had a healthy competition and we were best friends. And she had I think when things got weird 
was her parents, I think, were part of like the Masonic Lodge. And they have something that's kind of almost like a quinceanera or sweet 16 kind of thing. I don't know exactly what it was. I've never heard about it since then or whatever. But anyway, it was kind of like a coming of age thing there. And so she and I decided, okay, the colors are going to be teal and purple. And we decided we were going to wear it. It was like twinsies, best friendsies thing. And I went to it and I spoke to introduce her to everybody. I was the only black person there. I didn't think about it. You know, she didn't think about it. I don't think her mom thought it was a problem either. But after that, she stopped talking to me. She could not talk to me ever again. I could, she just completely just fell off the face of the earth. We're still in the same classes and all that kind of stuff, but we could, she just couldn't talk to me. I couldn't come over, nothing at all. And so years, years later, I'd come back to that town and I was in the downtown area and there was some sort of like parade that was happening. And it just so happened that she was on the float and she had her little sash. And she saw me like standing on the side of the street because I was kind of like, when is this thing going pass so I could cross the street? And she saw me and she just started crying. I remember it like it's clear like today. She saw me. She just started crying. She went from smiling and waving with her little princess, you know, sash and everything to just bawling. And I saw her as the float was starting to, you know, fall, go away right off into the sunset. I saw her just mouthing. I'm sorry. And I never saw or heard from her again, you know, so that happened. I've had other female friends that I thought were super duper cute. And then they've said some racist stuff. You know, I had one friend I had to argue with her about, you know, our former president, he who shall not be named. She was arguing when he was calling it the China virus. And I was saying that's absolutely racist. I don't have to be Chinese to care about human beings and to know that that's racist. And it's also causing emotional harm and physical harm. And I even told her before we started hearing about all of the the violence against Asian people, I said, this is going to lead to attacks against, and it was already starting. And she was arguing with me. She didn't think, you know, that was real. And she, it was interesting because she also started to use the excuse of, well, you know, the the virus came from China and they've got those wet markets and the way they handle animals. And I'm like, well, if you want to be upset at that, be upset at the animal, how we treat animals in this country, too. So if you're not upset at that, then at the end of the day, you're just racist. You're just racist, you know. And then when the George Floyd thing happened, because I kind of pulled away from her at that point. I didn't specifically say don't talk to me anymore, but I kind of pulled away from her. And then when the George Floyd thing happened, she was calling me up because she needed me to console her because of what she was feeling and how, you know, and I was just like, I specifically told her, like, I'm not really talking to a lot of people right now. This is very traumatic for me. It's very hard. And I gave her a link about how to be a supportive ally that I thought was great. And I'd also sent it to all of my non-Black and white, you know, friends. And they're, you know, if anybody had any questions, they know they can ask me if they're like, well, what does this mean? I don't understand. But she got upset at me. She just because she was no longer the focus. It wasn't about her, you know. And so that's something that I have experienced with white women where they those that I have experienced and tried to get close to will reveal this 
racism that they don't some of them don't even realize that they have. But it's part of it's kind of like they've been shielded from it, maybe or sheltered or some kind of like princess kind of thing. You know, it's like they know that they will be saved if I get kidnapped and then also a blonde girl gets kidnapped. They will find that blonde girl like tomorrow. They will tell they will tell the world I killed myself and be like, we couldn't find her. I'm sorry. You know what I mean? So it's like there is this. And obviously I'm not a white woman, so I can't tell you how white people think, white women think. But there is this kind of like, I know that I will be okay. So sometimes there's like a little bit crossing the line or doing too much because, you know, you can come back from it. Like the woman who got Emmett Till killed a few years ago, she came out and said, I lied. None of that was true. But she went gung ho with that for decades, for decades. That man was brutally killed at the hand or because of the word of a white woman. It's like there's a lack of responsibility, a lack of accountability. Everybody has to save me. I'm the one to be saved. If I was confused, I'm confused. There's this like the whole Karen culture. You know, people are like, oh, Karen's a horrible. No, it's legit. You know, there are certain white women that take it to that next level. They know that no matter what they do, they will be saved. If there's this video this is a white woman. She's trying to stop this white guy from skating, skateboarding in this area. She doesn't work there. He doesn't work there. There might be a sign that says no skateboarding, but there is nobody. And we're in a pandemic. <laughs> you know, there's nobody around. He's not hurting anybody. This woman is I thought at first he can't, she came with him, but she didn't. She is following him around on the skateboard, trying to kick the skateboard from out from under him while he's skating. All this kind of stuff, endangering both of their lives just so she can prove a point because she knows that all she has to do is call the police. All she has to do is say, this person harassed me, this person hurt me, da da da, and no one's going to question her. She can get away with it. You know what I mean? And so I have noticed that I've experienced that firsthand in my life. It's like there isn't the education, the the cultural sensitivity, the cultural awareness, not even just cultural, just there's a whole world outside of you that you don't have control of. It has nothing to do with you. You know, there's it's just it's it's not even maternal. It doesn't come from a maternal energy. It's a very, very dominant, controlling, like the the most negative aspect of the of masculine energy that they're taking upon themselves for no reason, just because they can. And people die because of this. People get arrested. People get beat up because of this. People's whole lives get upended and then they cry about it. You get tears. You get the whole, I didn't know, or I was just trying and they get away with it, you know? So, and I, I don't think, and what's interesting is going to speak to, to white men, especially white men that are in power. White women are their princesses. White women are their queens. If more white women had more exposure to a lot of different people, a lot of different ways of thought, they would influence the men because who run the world? Girls. At the end of the day, we are the reason why humans continue on because we are the vessels for creation, for life. So if white women, not obviously I'm not talking about all of them, so don't be upset, those that are listening to this, but if they would use their voice and their power for example, Voldemort got elected, was almost going to be elected again. Who? Who are the main people trying to vote for him? 
statistically, white women. Why? There's no benefit. This man does not care about you, your reproductive organs, your dreams, your hopes, your finances, anything. He's the worst thing for women in general. You know what I mean? So, but they are whole, they're upholding this really dominant and negative patriarchy without even realizing it. And so I feel like a lot of people of color, it's the fear comes from that. Like the fear that can come comes from this. The, they don't realize the power that they have, the power to destroy, you know what I mean? And to just be complicit in that, but then turn around and act and put a Black Lives Matter sign on the window and be like, I did my job for the day, you know? So there's a lot of dialogue about things like that that need to happen and a lot of dialogue within white people, white people that that are aware of what's going on, that want to make these changes. Like, okay, so last year during the pandemic, when everything was all crazy and in the middle of, yeah, in the middle of all of the, the protests, the Black Lives Matters protests, the George Floyd, all that, all that was happening. And we went cross country. This is before the election. So I think this was like September. We went cross country. Damon Valley and I went cross country to visit his family in Wisconsin. And there was this really interesting moment, which I think a lot of people need to know about. And it has to do with basically white folks, white families, white circles talking amongst themselves about civil rights and how they can do better, be better, work to actually help in the cycle. It's definitely not something that I feel like Black people, you know, people of color have to always jump in and save and educate all the time. There's so much information, so much resource out there that people can just pick and choose what they want to learn and how they want to learn it in order to change the tide when it comes to civil rights and human injustices and that sort of thing and white supremacy, white racism, all that kind of stuff. Right. So anyways, Damon was talking to his dad. Now I want to preface this by saying that I've known Damon for almost 20 years. I've known his father. They are not a racist family. So I just want to put that out there. So people don't think like, what's going on? Totally nice, sweet, very loving, very accepting family. But there was this one moment where Damon's dad and Damon started having this conversation about taking a knee. And his father was wondering, you know, why are they taking this knee? Because, you know, a lot of the information that was out there was that taking a knee was anti-American. It was unpatriotic. It was basically doing extra, doing the most kind of thing. And so then that was the information. That was the news that, you know, Damon's dad was getting out there in Wisconsin. So anyways, Damon actually began to have this conversation with his dad. Damon didn't come into the room. I was in a separate room laying down. Damon didn't come into the room and say, hey, my dad is talking about race stuff. How should I approach this? Or what should I say? Or can you come in here and educate my dad on taking a knee and that sort of thing? Damon actually armed with the knowledge that he had, you know, the compassion and the empathy that he has in his heart. He decided to talk to his dad and say, well, taking a knee is not disrespectful. In fact, it's very respectful. And Colin Kaepernick actually got the suggestion about taking a knee from a soldier, a U.S. soldier who said that taking a knee is actually a way that we're able to make a stand, make our voices heard. But at the same time, we are paying homage and we're paying respect for other people. 
And Damon was saying other things. But what was cool about that was I, as a black person, I was never the token black person, the token Negro that has to step in and intervene and educate. You know, Damon is a white man who lives in America. (laughs) You know, he has taken the time to open his eyes, open his ears and open his heart to the plight of other people. You know, hearing what we're talking about and what we need and what we're asking for as humans, not just black people, but as humans in general. Right. And so Damon took it upon himself to talk to his dad, to break things down in a way that both of them could understand. And then they opened up a conversation. And by the end of it, I think his dad was like, well, send me some links on information that I can learn more. And I think that's absolutely beautiful and something that has to happen more often. It does not really happen in white groups. White people are generally waiting for people of color to come save them and bail them out. And then there's always this excuse. Well, I didn't know. Well, I wasn't educated. Well, I didn't. We live in a world, right? We live in a society where we are connected. Most of us are very, very connected to the Internet. We're very connected to the news. It's a 24-hour news cycle on so many different platforms. We also have Wikipedia. We can reach out to celebrities or to civil rights leaders, ask them questions or follow their feeds and see what information they are sharing. We have access to History Channel, history.com, encyclopedias, all kinds of stuff. There is no reason why in today's society White people who are marching on the side of right can't feel somewhat confident to some extent to talk to their friends and family, their white friends and family about what's going on. And the change really happens within our social groups, right? Within who we hang out with. You know, if we're only hanging out with people that are only hanging out with white people that are only talking to white people, they won't even have, you know, you know what I'm saying? Like they won't even have the thought to think about other people because they're not around those other people. Right. And they're not absorbing lessons. They're not seeing firsthand, you know, kind of things. I mean, there are, there have been times where Damon and I have been out or myself and another white man have been out and nigger lover has been screamed at us, you know, that sort of thing. We have almost been run off the road before uh, by white racist people. Usually they're men. They're nine times out of ten they're men. But you know, as far as very being very physically, you know, outright aggressive. But it's like if you are not in situations like that where you are seeing the racism playing out, or you are not open, have an open heart or an open mind to hear about what people have experienced, you can't take that back to your your circles. You can't take that back to your white families or your your white friends and and plead our collective case as humans, you know, and I'm probably veering way off the road here, but I have just say like, it's, it's so important for white people that have the knowledge and the compassion and the empathy to express and communicate to their white network in a way that they can best understand each other. You know what I mean? I mean, we get influenced by the people that we are the closest to. So going back to the Damon story, I think that was absolutely beautiful because he did not rely on my labor, my emotional labor as a black woman to come in and educate and set things straight. He allowed me to still stay in my space, mind my own business, live my life while he does the job that I feel like 
he should be doing as a human, you know? Yeah, I I love that story, Kitten, because I love your perspective on that story, I should say, because as a white person, I can only understand from my white viewpoint, you know, and, and I don't want to, as you were saying, be bailed out by Black people, at least consciously, but maybe on some level I do or I did. And you articulating it that way is is really enlightening. And this whole process of becoming anti-racist is messy and uncomfortable. And it also reminds me of something that Bo Burnham said in his special. It's like, I don't know if you saw that, Kitten, but there's this vignette about a sock puppet that seems to be playing out to this narrative between people in power, especially white men and people that are being controlled or manipulated by them. And and I don't remember the exact phrase, but the essence of it was like, it's not all about you. And saying that to a white person who's like almost trying to play the victim of like, oh, like it's so hard to be a white person trying to be anti-racist. And like, I think it's a very humbling experience. And it's also an opportunity for us to work together and then also simultaneously step back in some ways. And I think it depends on the context. Like in this context, the way that I'm hearing it, Kitten, is that you wanted to step back. You wanted Damon to work this out with his father because it was between the two of them. And that's how Damon was supporting you. And there are other times where, you know, that could be seen as like a white savior. And and I think that's something I'm trying to better understand because I certainly don't want to come across that way or act that way because that's not helpful. And this is where it feels messy and uncomfortable as a white person. It's like, it's not going to be easy and it doesn't need to be, or maybe it even sh- shouldn't be easy because it hasn't been easy for people that are non-white. So we have the privilege in a way of it of it feeling uncomfortable, if that makes sense. Yeah, it definitely makes sense. There is this quote that I'm totally going to butcher because I don't remember it exactly, but I saw it. It's like a meme that I saw. And it was basically saying that if people of color or black people specifically, if we have to teach our children at very young ages how to navigate racism, how to navigate and recognize racism and that that it exists, if we have to do that in order for survival, then white children should also learn the same thing at an early age. There's often the argument that, well, you know, my child, like as far as white people go, you know, well, my child is so young, they don't need to know about that. They don't need to know about that. And that is a privilege in and of itself, the privilege to not know that racism exists or to not understand that racism isn't just, I don't like that person, but racism is, I absolutely abhor this person. I want to fucking kill this person. They shouldn't exist. They are a parasite. We, I am better than them. You know what I mean? It's like, if I have to be a small child being told that I can't come to the little girl's birthday party because I'm black, and this is when I'm, what, in kindergarten or something like that, if I have to experience that, if I have to navigate that water and, and process that at such a young age, white children should too. And it shouldn't be about shaming. You know what I mean? Like it shouldn't be like, well, let's all shame. Let's shame all the white children and make them feel horrible about themselves. I don't feel like that is 
the situation. I think that they should be privy to the real life, true information and then decide what they're going to do with their own lives with that information. You know, if you see a movie as a cartoon as a child and you see the bad guy doing bad things, right, you're aware that there's good and evil, bad and good from a young age looking at cartoons. So you see what the bad guy does and what happens to the bad guy and you decide, I don't want to be the bad guy. Very simple. And then you live your life as a child, not trying to be the bad guy. You want to be the good guy. You want to be the hero, right? You learn that at a young age. Same thing when it comes to white children. Yeah, white people have done amazing things. White people have also done absolutely horrible things. They need to know all of that. Same thing with black children. If black children are always only told that, well, you are only ever meant to be a slave and that's all you've ever contributed and your people have ever contributed, that's horrible, right? But if you say, yes, black people in America, by and large, are descendants of slaves. However, not all were. And also, many of those slaves ended up changing the way that the whole entire world operates, right? We have also been heroes. We created, you know, the stoplight. We we did the first heart transplant and all those kind of things. Many things that the whole entire world benefits from came from the descendants of slaves or people that were still slaves at that time. We didn't have the status or the ability to own our copyrights and our patents and all that kind of stuff, but we still did it. The history is out there. The paper trail still exists. So if we are able to show children the dichotomy, well, it's more than a dichotomy, right? We kind of live in a gray. But if people can see the spectrum of human life, human existence, human achievement, then children can grow from that and become better, more dynamic children knowing things if we know what the past is what do they say like if you um if you don't know the history you're doomed to repeat it we do a great disservice to children black children white children all children by not letting them know what's really going on what really happened you know what i mean and yeah it's it's difficult it's difficult it's hard and it's ugly and it's ugly and it's difficult and hard for everyone but especially those that it targets i should never have had to feel like maybe there's something wrong with me because I'm black when I was a kindergartner. Thankfully, I had very strong parents who instilled in me a pride in being black, but it was never like, you know, I'm black, fuck everybody else. It was like, I'm black, I'm proud. Look at that person. That person is, you know, Mexican. That's awesome. That person is Japanese. That's so cool. That person is a a white person from Kentucky. That's awesome. Like I was never taught exclude people. I was taught to be aware, to pay attention, to be safe, but I was also taught to love. You know what I mean? So one does not exclude the other. But yeah, like you were saying, it is ugly and it is hard and and we need ugly and hard because that is life. That is real, real life. And there are ways that we can make it, I don't want to say palatable and digestible, but there are ways that we can effectively communicate that and effectively have these tough decisions and come out on the other side, better people, you know? I think that's incredibly important. And, and you talking about raising this level of awareness, right? And for me, when you talk about how we are we are learning as children and learning as adults, what it brings up for me is this level of awareness around the subconscious languaging and, and how that's used to kind of program children and adults, right? And I remember when I kind of had this, this one of the many aha moments around education as children and thinking about language specifically around terms like you're the black sheep, 
you're being blackballed, you're being blacklisted. You know, all of these sort of negative terminologies that were in, you know, instilled at a very young age. And I just think it's important that as we grow this awareness around languaging, around what we're taught, around what we get imprinted as children, to do the work to unravel a lot of that as adults. And as Whitney mentioned, and, and you talked about Kitten, you know, as we are actively pursuing, you know, anti-racism and unraveling the history and learning the truth, learning the contribution of people of color throughout, you know, human history. And also, like I said, looking at languaging and how that affects our subconscious mind. It's a lot of work and it's important work. It's necessary work. If And I believe if we want humanity to continue on this planet, like on a macro level, right, of humans continuing to exist and live on planet Earth, this is part of the work that we need to do. Because if we keep hating each other, killing each other, initiating hatred and prejudice and, and limiting each other's freedom and actively oppressing each other, humanity, I don't believe... And I don't want to sound macabre. I don't think it's going to continue on this planet unless we do the hard work of this, of unraveling, actively contributing, and not just becoming aware of what's happening, but taking positive, loving action toward the kind of world we want. And I really believe that that is, is, is the work that pretty much damn near all of humanity needs to do if we're going to keep surviving. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. Yeah. And I like that you brought up about language, how there's like these little hidden uh, microaggressions in language. There is this, so I love Jamiroquai. I like, I love Jamiroquai. That's one of my, I remember Jason, you, you had a, a talk somewhere that we went, I think this was years ago. And you were talking about finding your touchstone and identifying what your touchstone is. Like when you're going through like a crisis or you're feeling down or whatever. And I, was thinking about that. And I know Jamiroquai is one of those for me where it's like, today is shit. I'm going to throw on a Jamiroquai album and I know which one is appropriate for this level of shitness feeling. <laughs> but there's this one song and I forgot what it's called. It might be called Black Devil Car or something like that. But the first time I heard it, I want to say that it's on the Virtual Insanity, that album, but maybe not. It might be on another one. But anyway, there is a song where he's singing about this black devil car, you know, uh, riding around in my black devil car. When I heard that, I was like, hmm, that's I don't know how I feel about this. And then there's this one part where he's talking about white angels crying and that kind of thing. And it's like, you know, he's showing this this dichotomy, this negative black thing, but then white angels. And when I first heard that song, like. I don't know JK personally. I don't know anybody from Jamiroquai personally, but Jamiroquai is a very diverse band. So I don't assume that they are, you know, racist and stuff. But that's kind of a popular trope, though, isn't it? Like black devil, white angels. But as a black person, self-identified and also globally, internationally, I mean, no matter where I go, people may not assume I'm American, but they know I am black, right? Black and derivatives of that color, that name, black, negro, negra, negrita, that is what I am all over the world in whatever language it is. So as a black person, as a black child, you know, growing up and hearing that black, you know, black magic, black 
devil, black this, white this, white, you know, white is the, the thing that we want, right? We, we want to aspire to the purity of whiteness and not the dirtiness of blackness. How does that make black children feel? How does that make black people feel? You know, we have these little things hidden in words. How do we flip that? You know, but yeah, I also agree with you when you were saying like, if we continue on this past, on this path, we will as humans cease to exist because we're not listening to each other. We're not caring about each other. You know, if I say, hey, this song makes me feel uncomfortable. This black devil car song makes me feel uncomfortable. I love you. I love you to the moon, but this makes me feel uncomfortable. The response that I should get should be, oh, wow, I didn't even think about it this way. I'm really sorry. I have some things to think about versus you're being defensive. You're being this and that. It's just a song. It's just a song, right? Just brushing it aside. That is, that is an example of not listening. And that is the path that we are on. It's wild to me that Black people, and I speak a lot about Black people, obviously, because I am Black. Like I've done DNA tests and I'm everything everything under the sun, almost literally. But as society stands, I'm a black person. I'm a black woman. So it blows my mind that black people from all over the world, but especially black people in America can say, hey, stop doing A, B, C, D, E, F through Z because it hurts us. It oppresses us. It kills us. It harms us. And collectively, people say, oh, be quiet. It's not that big of a deal. Oh, it's not. You guys are over-dramatizing. How are millions of people that identify with the same group all across this country or all across this world are having these same experiences? And still, to this day, people are not listening to us. People feel like they know better than we do. You know, people think that we are over-exaggerating and we're not going to get anywhere. In this way, you know what I mean? We're not going to get anywhere if we're not listening to each other. I'm not sure if I mentioned mentioned this before. I might have, but about white guilt. And I learned about white guilt mm, probably 10 years ago, you know, because oftentimes being a part of a group that gets marginalized and pushed to the edges we're so busy focused on our own survival, right? That we're just like, I'm just trying to wade through this muck. I can't really look at you and see what you're going through. I'm trying to just save myself. But the white guilt thing is so interesting. And it's something to listen to because I feel like if that is also not addressed by white people, but also by people of color, we can't move through it either because we're not listening, right? There's so many white people that do want to help but they feel absolutely guilty about what their ancestors did or feel guilty about the societal constructs that they still benefit from. And they are kind of almost scared shitless about what to do and where to move because they feel like anything I say, anything I do is going to be whatever. So then they start, they start feeling guilty, but feel like they have nowhere to go. And some of those people are the people that I would love to speak and all that kind of stuff, share share their story or feel more comfortable to talk to us, meaning people of color. But there are so many, like I said, so many people of color that are trying to survive, that they are not thinking about people that want to be allies. They could be feeling locked in guilt. My suggestion, I don't have a solution, but my suggestion for that is it's ugly. You know what I mean, the shit is ugly. The shit is ugly. So white people that are dealing with white guilt, find, seek 
people of color, black people that are open to having a dialogue with them, a one on one dialogue, but a listening kind of dialogue, you know, express all the stuff that you want to say. We can have like I'm one of those people. As long as you want to have a dialogue and you don't want to tell me how I should be feeling or telling me how I should be responding to my own, you know, oppression. But if you want to actually express your concerns, you know, I'm an ally. I feel this is horrible and that's horrible. I found out that I've got, you know, an ancestor that was a slaver and all this kind of stuff. You know, obviously we can't unravel, you know, your whole life story, but let's have this conversation. I was in an actual conversation with that where it was like a diverse group of people and a white woman and a white man were co-signing each other and they were talking about that white guilt and feeling like they want to do something, but feeling like they can't because they'll be, you know, laughed out of town or cussed out of town or whatever. And I feel like it just starts with one person, right? Talk to me or talk to somebody else that you feel will listen. Express what you're feeling, express what you want to do. If you're only expressing, it's hard to be white right now because, you know, it's just really hard and people don't like white people. Well, I don't want to have that conversation because it's still not hard to be white. It's never going to be hard to be white in this country. It just ain't, you know, it might be uncomfortable because people are calling you out, but it ain't going to be hard. But if you want to talk about, I want to help. How can I help? I feel like I want to talk to my uncle about this, or I feel like I want to talk to, you know, whatever. How can I help you? This, you know, like that kind of dialogue, I think will bust open the fucking floodgates of compassion and love and people pausing and listening to each other. And then we can figure out how we can help each other and raise the vibration and raise this positive consciousness so that humanity can continue to exist on this planet and maybe even others. Yeah, that's really beautiful, Kitten. And I love the way that you've articulated that today. It's very powerful. Yeah, and there's just so many tools and so many perspectives that you shared today. And for the listener, we want to link to all of Kitten's information, her music, her Instagram, her incredible food through her brand Chocolate Martha, everything for you to follow up with her incredible, heartfelt, soulful work in this world. We'll have all of those at our website, which is wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. Just click on the podcast section. It'll take you to the show notes and the transcript for this episode. We'll have all the ways you can reach Kitten and enjoy her incredible work in this world because you are leading with such heart and such realness. And uh, speak for Whitney that we're, we're deeply grateful to call you a friend, a creative collaborator, and just thank you for coming on and sharing so much heartfelt wisdom today. It, it is making a huge impact on this planet, Kitten, and we love you and appreciate you. Thank you. I love you both, too. Thank you for having me on. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com.